lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, I'm joined by author Fahana Kazi, and we discuss her book, Invisible Martyrs, which takes us inside the secret world of female Islamic radicals. Just a couple of quick notes before we begin. Um, I apologise slightly in advance. During this interview, you'll notice that I was uh, suffering from a cold. Uh, Back in October, I caught the flu. So forgive me for my slightly croaky voice in this one and the odd sniffle. I want to say a huge thank you to Dan Carrazzo, who is our latest Patreon subscriber. Thank you very much, Dan, for your support. I do really appreciate it. If you like the work I'm doing on this podcast, please support it by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. Any donations you make go towards new equipment and hosting fees. And hopefully, in the future, um, I might be able to start going on location more and meeting guests in all sorts of interesting places. So, yeah, you never know. I might be able to make the scope of the show much bigger and a bit more international than we do at the moment. And one other thing you can do, so if you don't want to subscribe to the show, that's absolutely fine, but uh, please could you leave a review of the podcast on your preferred podcast app. So if you're an Apple user, please go to Apple and write a review saying what you like about the podcast. Hopefully the reviews will be positive. Um, We are also on Pocket Cast, Acast, and we are also on a new app called Entail, and we're now on Spotify. So when you're listening to your music, if you find that you've had enough of uh, endless Christmas tunes or endless chill-out playlists or whatever it is that you listen to, you can uh, you can stop that playlist and you can go to the podcast section and then you can just type in Dry Cleaner Cast and there we are. We will be there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy this episode. This one, I really enjoyed this interview. Um, I think Fahana was a great guest. And her book is brilliant. And if you're interested by this book, do click on the picture of this podcast in your podcast app. And in the text, there will be a link to where you can purchase this book. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Fahana, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a professor currently teaching a class on gender conflict and security Mm -hmm. um, in George Washington University, which is located in Washington, D.C. I've been in America for most of my life. I was originally born in northern Pakistan, but migrated here in the 1970s. And I tell people... You know, if you really want to classify me, I'm a researcher at heart and and a writer as well. 
Fantastic. And you were the, the first Muslim woman to join the Counterterrorism Center. Can you tell us a little bit about what CTC was like and how you came to join it? Yeah, well, so it's kind of a phenomenal story for me because I didn't understand what that life would entail. I only knew that as a child growing up in America, I was very moved by conflicts that were happening um, in America, taking place on my television screen, but also, you know, the stories of conflict from my own parents. Um, my, my, my mother would talk about the conflict in Kashmir, and it's a conflict that continues to this day. But because my mother had joined the Pakistan army in the 1960s, and after that became a political activist, that really moved me as a child. So growing up with those stories, and then my father's influence, um, my father had aspired for me to work for the U.S. government in any agency, really. And he would tell me that I want you to lead a life of service. So that became my mantra. And of course, in many ways, you can serve your, uh, you, you can lead that life, whether by serving your community, your family, and, and of course, serving your country. So for me, it was joining the intelligence community. At the time, I didn't know what that meant. But once I had gone through the clearance process and the, you know, the thorough investigation, once I entered, I realized I am the only Muslim woman, and I was in my 20s back then. Um, so it was really daunting experience for me. It was eye-opening, and the day that I joined was a terrorist attack. Um, the United States had been attacked off the coast of Aden in Yemen, and that was the USS coal bombing in 2000. And so that experience was life-altering for me, but it would it would have changed it would have changed my life entirely. Yeah, I mean that's a real baptism of fire, so to speak, and it starting on a day of a terrorist attack. Yes. And I realized that there were two different roles I had to play at that time. I was newly married. I had a child at home. I had a traditional life on the one hand, and then I would go to work. And it was really not work. I mean, this is a lifestyle. It's a mission. And as a Muslim, I was also trying to discover my own faith because there were questions about Islam all the time. I mean, on the one hand, I was looking very closely with my colleagues at Islamic extremism and radicalism, and I was trying to understand and also tell them this is not true Islam. True Islam is loving, peaceful, and compassionate. And the killing of indiscriminate men, women, children, or even, you know, setting fire to an orchard or land or seizing land is un-Islamic. And so then back then the agency created the Islamic Working Group and I became a part of it. But I felt that there was so much ignorance um, then and perhaps even now. And I had to educate myself as well on on Islam. You mentioned the, that sort of sense of ignorance and stuff. Has that got any better, do you think? Do you think your time at CTC helped sort of address that? Or I would like to think so. I mean, I don't want to say I was the only Muslim. There were also other Muslim men uh, who were working as operations officers or in the field. And then slowly there were other Muslim men who joined. And there was a constant struggle. And I can tell you that the Muslim men I worked with are no longer there. Many actually quit after 9-11. There was just kind of a toxic environment. It was difficult for them. And I continued to stay for five years because I wanted to show a different side of Islam. I wanted to also prove that you can be what I call the good American. You can be good and true to your faith, and also you can be good and true to this country. That it's possible to be both, and there is not a 
a you know a, a difference. So you didn't have to choose one over the other. Um, but even staying five years, it had its own challenges. Um, it was a very demanding career, putting Islam aside, uh, to be called at 3 a.m. in the morning because of some threat over the weekend or to being pulled away from a family event. Uh, I mean, it, it was enormous strain on my family as well. I often think that if I, I should have done this as a single woman. Um, but, you know, I had married very young at the time and I had children. And so, um, and that, that changed my life as well. But if you choose this career, and I tell my students today who are, who are young women and they're interested in this career, and I often start with this question, what do you want in life? Um, are you able to devote yourself entirely? In other words, sacrifice all of your other needs and wants, even your family, for the sake of the mission and country. And even though I still serve, I mean, I'm also an instructor for the U.S. military, and I teach Islam and Islamic civilization and political Islam as well. Um, so I enjoy serving in that capacity. But I realize that we have to that there are many ways of serving is what I'm trying to say. There are many ways to serve your country. And after five years, it dawned on me that I needed to find a lifestyle that was also, you know, that helped me achieve, you know, my, my greater goal, which is um, learning and continuing to, you know, practice my faith. Yeah, that's completely understandable. I mean, like, you know, as you're saying, life circumstances such as family and things completely alter your life um, experience as you get older, you kind of realize that actually things that you're doing in your 20s now don't work for you in your 30s and 40s. It's, uh, yeah, that's totally understandable. Well, look, um, one thing that you mentioned in your book that um, in the pre 9 11 analysis of terror, men were mainly the focus of attention. And you, like, you sort of discovered that women actually play a vital role in terrorist organizations. Can you just, can you talk to us a little bit about that discovery? Yeah, so I began to discover female supporters of terrorism, even when I was in the U.S. government. And I wrote a top secret document that's been declassified called From Rocking the Cradle to Rocking the World. And I can talk about it because I published an article and then I started publishing many articles. And then when I joined after the government went to the RAND Corporation and was in a think tank, and then I was being interviewed by the media on what's happening in the conflict in Iraq, for example, when you had a spike in female suicide terrorists. And even though women mostly played a supportive role. Uh, now they became active and they were operators or became operationalized. And so then I, um, you know, I began to, uh, I wanted to offer understanding because women are so few. Um, if you look at the, you know, statistics of women, now we place women in the hundreds, but no one has an exact figure of how many women are actually involved in terror attacks or terrorist organizations. Um, but I wanted to go beyond the data and I wanted to answer why. Why are these women joining? And that question of why, and even the question of why do men join, I think sometimes we overlook that very important question. And until we can look at the root causes of terrorism, uh, we continue to miss the point, and we're still embroiled in so many conflicts taking place in the Muslim world. Yeah, I mean, it seems like probably a silly question at this stage, but what is it that really sort of drew you to this topic about why do some women kill? I have to say, and it's probably over a simplistic statement, but I'm a Muslim woman myself. And what I tried to do is um, put myself in her place. If I had been... Um, subjected to torture, abuse, um, you know, raised in a protracted conflict, <clears throat> excuse me, would I have made the same choice? Would I have turned to violence? 
So I always try to be what's called, you know, either sympathetic or try to use empathy. And that comes from me. I, I, by heart, I would like to think a very compassionate person and I'd like to practice, you know, the, the principle of mercy and compassion in Islam. So I try to understand what makes that girl or woman choose this path. And sometimes, you know, you don't have all the answers, especially when a woman commits an attack and then she's no, no longer exists. So a dead terrorist is a dead terrorist. But of the girls and women who exist, I began to travel began to enter their homes, their offices, and their prisons um, to ask those questions. And if you listen to their stories, you will realize that, uh, first of all, no Muslim woman is alike. Uh, each has their own unique story and circumstance. But I do believe in what I call my three C's, which is the thread throughout the book, um, culture, context, and capability. We have to understand the role of culture and especially context. Um, it is too easy to say um, you know, to say that these women are demonic, um, that they're all right evil. I learned this from my professor, Dr. Gerald Post, when I was studying as a grad student here at George Washington University. Um, you know, terrorists are not born, they're made. And those who become psychopaths or even sociopaths, and they exhibit certain signs and symptoms, you have to really go further back and understand um, how they came to this point. And often it begins at childhood or, or it began, there's a gradual, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's gradual. One comes into these organizations by being exposed either to torture or abuse over time. And even those girls living in the West in particular who are not tortured, who are not abused, but they are being indoctrinated and recruited in a very different way. But they're still moved by um, either personal reasons, which is what I found for women, that it's mostly personal, whereas for men, it, can, it, it largely becomes political. You mentioned that, you know, there are different reasons across different cultures. And and in your book, you sort of talk about Afghanistan, Iraq, and we talk a little bit about the West as well. There's, you had these sort of interesting discussions in Afghanistan with a U.S. Army lady called Lisa, and she had been interviewing sort of terror suspects and so on. Are you able to talk to us a little bit about about the Afghanistan picture, and then we can move on? Well, then we'll have a look at Iraq after that. Yes, of course. So it's important that you raise this, Chris, because Afghanistan and Iraq are two different Muslim countries, mm. completely different histories. Um, and so we have to bear that in mind as well. Again, culture and context. And what I want to start off is that in the book, it's a chapter called Soul Sick. Soul Sick is a word that Lisa uses. And Lisa is actually a very dear friend of mine. She just retired from the U.S. Army. And she has a, a heart of gold because she really cares about the Afghan people, especially the Afghan women. And now that she's retired, she says to me, I have to go back and help those women. Um, she's you know, not a typical soldier in, in my mind. And so I just want to preface this conversation by saying that Lisa was directly impacted by a female suicide bomber. So there, you know, she, and I, I talk about this event that took place in a small village. And then the, and so she was, she and her team, she was a commander of this army unit. And so there was a firefight one night with the local insurgents who belonged to a group called Hizbi Islami, um, HIG, we call HIG. Anyhow, so as this firefight continues, um, on the right side of the room in the back of the house, there's a local woman and she's concealed by her clothing. She's standing next to a large propane tank. And, and then suddenly an explosion hits the house. And Lisa is blown out the front door the suicide bomber had killed four children and two American servicemen. And that 
had, I remember when Lisa was in my living room and trying, telling me this story, you know, it was very emotional for her because not only did she lose members of her unit, but she was trying to understand why would this woman do this? And so you see in the case of Afghanistan, there's so few female suicide bombers. Um, one, it's mostly, I mean, again, a very patriarchal, patrilineal, of a tribal, male-dominated society. Um, and so in that context, you know, according to Lisa, women are manipulated, they're coerced, they're being used. Um, and so she then talks about women's roles in Afghan society. Um, and so in Afghanistan, female bombers are really the exception. They're not the norm. And I would say, and actually in any Muslim country, they really uh, are not the norm, although you would see more women joining in Iraq for different reasons. And, and so um, in her interviews with women, she will discover that women are, in this particular instance, you know, women are poor, women are nomadic, um, from, uh, the nomads are coochies. And so in her experience, she's found that these are the women who uh, can be exploited because they're vulnerable. Or if an Afghan woman has lost her husband, for example, then it's easy to exploit her as well. It's a very different context. And I think we need to bear that in mind. Yeah. I mean, you were, one of the observations came up is like women are almost invisible in Afghanistan because they're sort of denied this gender quality that was promised them under Islamic law. And it kind of makes them the almost the perfect person because if you, you know, you can't look at women and treat them equally, then it makes it very difficult for like men in the military to actually be able to sort of deal with, um, with them as potential suspects. Absolutely. And that's why I named the book um, Invisible Martyrs, because the invisibility of women um, actually plays into the hands of male terrorists, even in the case of Iraq. So the ability for to women to, you know, this uh, ability to disguise and deceit mm. um, is very powerful for men. Women can disguise their bomb, for example, under their large abaya, their clothing, uh, which is what women did in Iraq. And that's why they were undetected. There's something else though, in Muslim society, men honor their women. And um, that concept of honor it means that you know, most men don't look at other women that are not in their family. And so there's that sign of respect. Uh, and therefore, I remember one military officer who was stationed in Fallujah said to me years ago, um, if we're not allowed to look at them, how do we even search them? And so then, and years later, the American military realized they needed to employ um, female platoon officers, for example, from the army and started recruiting female officers, but also then started to um, employ local female Iraqi policewomen as well. Um, so that became a huge issue because you had women who were detonating in the marketplace, who were um, detonating in a Shia mosque. Um, it became very sectarian as well. And women at police checkpoints, I mean, because women were undetected and they were considered the victims of conflict, not the victimizers, and that concept of victimhood, because most women in conflict, let's be honest, are victims. They're not perpetrators. And so that also played into the hands of male terrorists, and they exploited all of these gender kind of stereotypes that we have of women. I was just going to add that in the case of Iraq, the, another thing that's very important is that men opened the space for women. So Abu Musab al-Zaqawi years ago, who was a leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, had issued a statement and now began to actively recruit women. That was an important stepping stone for al-Qaeda. And then later, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who obviously was a leader of ISIS and still is as far as we know, then began to 
also actively recruit women. This is the reason why you see so many women and young girls joining ISIS because men allowed women to join um, for whatever reason, whether it was to be part of the Alcanza Brigade and you know act like you know the moral police, or some women be, uh, were to be operationalized, or some women were just sitting on the you know surfing the internet acting as propagandists. The point is that women were allowed to play a more active role because of men. And so I often say that it's very important to understand the relationship between men and women. Even though I mostly focus on uh, the women's issues, I mean, women are not without men. We live in a society where men and women both matter. And that to me is very important. That when men open the doors and involve women and actively recruit and seek them, then women also join as well. Yeah. And what did you discover about sort of the, the motivations of the women who ended up joining Al-Qaeda in Iraq or, or ISIS? I do think that conflict plays a very important role. In fact, even though I don't spend a great deal of time in my book speaking about conflict itself, I don't ignore it um, because I'm trying to look at the psychological, personal aspect. Um, and that's the that was the focus of the book. But it is very important to understand that conflicts in the Muslim world today act as an impetus for these women to join and men as well. And, and so that becomes another, you know, political conversation. But I, I mean, I honestly believe that if there wasn't the conflict in Syria, for example, and if the Assad regime hadn't acted, you know, for decades um, with, a, with a ruled with a brutal hand, then there wouldn't have been uprising from the people. I mean, ISIS did not suddenly emerge and neither did Al-Qaeda. This was gradual and over time. These organizations, at first you had kind of a, a peaceful, nonviolent opposition groups, and then that evolved into rebel groups. And then suddenly you evolved into kind of fringe groups, which became uh, terrorist organizations because they used violence. Um, and so that's where we are today. And, and it's a really a, again, a larger conversation about the political environment in which we live. But I do believe that politics is a very important factor in the reason why men join. Um, but for women, it also becomes personal. So for example, in a conflict, when a woman loses her husband, her son, her brother, or a male cousin, or any other male provider, it often leaves women in these societies vulnerable, especially if you're living in a protracted conflict like Iraq. Um, and then, or even in a conflict like Kashmir. And Kashmir, you don't have violent women, you have nonviolent protesters, but still what I'm talking about is activism or protest. You know, the larger question is why do women protest? And violence can be a means of protest, or you can come out to the streets and just protest peacefully, but what you're doing is you are giving voice to your grievances and seeking out uh, world attention. And terrorists do it in the most violent and barbaric ways. Other women do it by protesting on the streets or creating women's organizations or joining political parties, whatever it is. It is a means of protest. And so I think that when women, in the particular case of Iraq, for example, when they've lost everything, they become susceptible to terrorist recruitment because they're vulnerable. One woman said, I lost 16 members of my family. What did you expect me to do? And so that incredible loss and tragedy that some of these women and girls face, um, we cannot even imagine it. I mean, I cannot even imagine it because I live in a comfortable lifestyle in the West. But I try to think, you know, 
or I try to understand. And that's what we need. We need understanding that if these are the reasons because of loss and tragedy, what my professor, Dr. Post, would, you know, uh, refer to as PTSD symptoms, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that comes from anxiety, you know, anxiety, depression, um, trauma, abuse, all of these factors play a role in women living in conflict. Now, it's different for women who are outside of conflict, but again, for the girls, for example, in London or a girl in the United States who's looking online, um, she may also be moved by the political situation. And, and many girls in interviews will say, I wanted to help. I wanted to do something. You know, Islam is about charity. And so they translated that concept of charity of, I need to help my brothers and sisters in need. They're suffering. How can I sit here when they're suffering and I'm doing nothing? It's a very strong concept in Islam of charity. But again, that concept is being twisted, perverted, manipulated by terror organizations who are calling on men and women from the West to take violent action. I mean, there are many ways to address conflicts in the Middle East right now. And indiscriminate use of violence is not one of them. Am I right in remembering in Afghanistan, when the Taliban take control of areas or, or tries to take control of an area, they've actually targeted projects that are based around women and even schools. They don't want women to become educated and they don't seem to want women to become independent people. Is there anything that kind of... Um, that we can learn from that? Is it, is it literally these sort of terrorist organizations predominantly run by men are trying to exploit women for potential future use? Yeah, it's, it's great that you mentioned the use of schools. Uh, a school is a, and a classroom is a sacred space. A school is a space where you have, we see teachers and staff, but parents, I mean, the entire community comes together at a school. And so uh, school is a place of learning, a positive affirmation, of, uh, should be nurturing, a place of discovery for students. And um, when you take that sacred space away, you have demolished one's intellect um, in, in every capacity. Um, and so taking that education away from girls is a sin, in, in my opinion, in Islam. I mean, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, emphasized the role of education, the importance of education, um, and the importance of learning is highlighted in more than 500 places in the Quran, beginning with the first commandment that was given to the Prophet through Archangel Gabriel. Read in the name of your Lord who created man from a clot. Read, and your Lord is the most generous who taught by the pen. You know, I always talk about this concept by the pen, jihad bil qalam. Um, jihad of the pen, which is education and learning. So to take that away from a young girl is probably one of uh, kind of a, a, a double crime. One, you're and to me, it's a, you know, it's 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 really a double crime. And by the way, it's not just happening. Um, it's not just at the hands of terrorists, but it's also, um, if you look at, you know, it's kind of a side note here, but what's happening in Burma today, the Burmese military is also has attacked young. Uh, women who were school teachers and, you know, raped them and burned down their schools and then burned down the village. And I went to a film event last night, Mother, Daughter, Sister, by, it was the name of the film. And the filmmaker was talking about this, you know, what happens to a community when you lose the school. And so um, for terror organizations in the Muslim world who do this, um, you're actually taking away their Islamic obligation, their Islamic right to an education. And that to me is unacceptable. It's almost unforgivable. It is. It is indeed. 
in that situation in Burma, I mean, I, I, I do need to do an episode on that at some point because I just, yeah, it's such a horrific situation. It's sort of just ongoing. Same with Syria as well. Um, so sort of moving on from that, there have been women in the West who have joined extremist groups and committed acts of violence. And one attack that you looked at was the, that you mentioned in your book is the San Bernardino attack. Was there anything in particular that you gleaned from that situation? Yeah, so what really disturbed me was, again, you know, a woman who came from Pakistan, um, and the media had contacted me immediately about this because, I mean, I'm from Pakistan um, originally, although I never really lived in Pakistan. But here's this woman, Tashwin Malik, who was in Pakistan, who was seemingly an educated uh, girl at the university and then somehow is in Saudi Arabia, but then comes to America through an arranged marriage. Um, and and then what happened? Like what triggered that? And so this was a husband and wife, what I call a hit team, who committed murder against a local community center in San Bernardino in December, 5th, in December early December 2015. And, and not only was she a woman from Pakistan in an arranged, you know, supposedly an arranged marriage. I mean, she found her partner online, but she had a six month old child. And so she was a mother. And so there were so many facets to that situation that, that were mind boggling, even for someone like me. And so now I'm trying to explain this case to the Western media of why would she do it? And I have to say, I don't know that we have answers uh, again, because she was killed in that uh, immediately after uh, by, you know, local security forces. Yeah. We don't really have a full understanding. And that is the honest truth about this subject. Because the study of female terrorists or, you know, violent perpetrators is such an obscure topic. Um, and there's so few of them really in the large, you know, in terms of numbers, really. Um, we won't have all the information. And in this case, we don't. And I can only suspect that she was radicalized um, before she came to America. And that she was certainly radicalized uh, or in support of her husband, who had been a radical as well. And that the other point that is so daunting to me uh, is her invisibility. Um, if you look at interviews of after the terrorist attack, interviews of her brother-in-law on American news channels, interviews of her family members, no one seemed to know her. And in, even interviews of members of the mosque where she attended, she would go to prayer and then she would come home. No one knew her. And that's why in the book, I titled the chapter, The Stranger, because it's really too easy to become strangers in this country. I mean, especially if you live in large cities and you're leading a, a busy life and you're so consumed with your own you know, families. Um, it, it, I can understand that, you know, we live among strangers. But in this case, she didn't seem to adapt, acclimate, acclimate to not just Western society, no one's expecting her to ad adopt Western norms. I mean, this woman is very traditionally dressed, but she didn't seem to even mingle with her family members um, or even with her neighbors and even with members of the mosque community. So here's a case of true invisibility. Yeah, and do you think, I mean, this is a bit of an out there question, but do you think if anybody, I mean, we don't know for sure, but if anybody had made a concerted effort to get to know her, that it might have changed her path. I would hope so. And I think intervention is a key step in preventing uh, radicalization in the first place. Um, and there's an entire 
industry, let's call it, called CVE, Counting Violent Extremism, or what we call PVE, Preventing Violent Extremism. There are many professionals in the government and also in mm. think tank communities and elsewhere, all across the world, who are working on CVE and PVE strategies. Intervention is key, but intervention has to happen at the right time as well. And intervention has to be continuous. Um, you can't just uh, one moment, you know, suspect someone and then say, stop. Uh, you need to be educated yourself. I mean, if these if Islam plays a role in their radicalization, for example, or their misunderstanding, misreading, misinterpretation of Islam, then one has to be educated on Islamic doctrine. And that's where I have tried, you know, many years later to educate myself on Islam, to study classical Arabic, to know the Quran, to understand the Hadith, the literature, and to appreciate it. Because ISIS and these groups use, you know, Islamic uh, scripture and they're cherry picking from the Quran and they don't have the they don't provide contextual analysis of a revelation. They'll just say, you know, they they'll just uh, maybe quote verbatim, um, but, but without context, without understanding uh, and without even an appreciation of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who was a man of mercy, then then it's so easy to be to fall into that trap and i see this in the west i see this right here in america the case of shannon conley or even the three east african girls who were all from denver colorado which is another case in the book um and shannon conley actually she was about 19 when she boarded a plane in denver international airport and she was going to head to turkey and to syria thank goodness the authority stopped her and so she was put in prison, but in the courtroom, when it was her turn to speak, she apologized and she said, I did not understand Islam. I did not know that this was, um, you know, this was haram, this was a sin, that I was, uh, that, that Islam is, uh, really speaks to charity, but this is not the way to help the oppressed. And so she speaks of her own ignorance and in the East African girls, in their case, which, by the way, the media, you don't even see their names. You don't even know who they are. Uh, they've kept that case very quiet. But those girls were intercepted in Germany. And thank goodness that they were brought back into America. And the attorney general pardoned those three girls because they were underage. They were teenagers. And so when I went to interview the Somali Community Center, you know, it was a wake-up call for them because they realized and in that case, ISIS empowered those girls because they were, you know, leading very kind of ultra conservative lives. The girls were at home, they went to school and they come back and maybe they go to the mosque. But they had no outward, you know, they had no external opportunities to engage the community or after school activities. And so a mother said that to me, ISIS empowers our girls. And now they understood that they needed to empower their children in other ways, allow them more opportunities to, um, you know, I mean, in America, it's just not possible that you're living in, you know, the UK and another Western country that you would just keep your girls at home. And so the internet is a brand new world and the internet offers friendship and instant likability and popularity and all of those things that these girls need in the normal outside world. For every teenager today, the internet is the place where they communicate with all their friends and they pursue their interests. I mean, we all, to some extent, do it. We, you know, through Twitter and Facebook, we're all looking up our interests and kind of connecting with people through our interests. So it's, uh, yeah, it's totally understandable that the internet's become such a powerful force for extremist recruitment. I mean, one thing that you, you, I mean, you talked about it just now, and it comes up in your book a lot, is about 
you know, for Muslims who live in the West, um, their parents are living increasingly busy lives and younger members of the family have this sort of growing identity crisis and a growing ignorance of faith because the parents are too busy to pass on sort of the old stories of faith that teach children about how to live a balanced and compassionate life through Islam. And this, you know, creates that vulnerability for extremist interpretations. I mean, can you, can you talk to us a bit about... Um, as you mentioned in the book about how you have actually, um, you've taken a step to actually sort of read certain books to your children and so on, because you've had sort of seen this in other people's situations. Yeah, and, and it is very personal for me, as it is very personal for many Muslims living in the West that I know. Even, I mean, I have cousins and entire family living in England as well, in London. And from their stories and my own, we were ignorant of Islam. And our parents are ignorant too. And you see this next generation wanting to embrace the faith in a more meaningful, richer way, wanting to truly understand. And so I see many children who embrace Islam and then they teach their parents. Or I see children embrace Islam and then they're almost even fighting with their parents, you know, because it is a multi, it's sort of a generational gap between the children and the parents. I mean, parents mostly come to the West for economic opportunities and, of, of course, the educational resources as well. So children like myself, we were expected to be, um, you know, in my case, expected to be Pakistani, but also American. And and sometimes there, you know, sometimes it's, I hate to use this phrase, but it's kind of a clash um, because you had to, I mean, my father would always say in, in great respect to him that to lead a balanced life, to take what's best from the West and also what's best from the East. Um, but having done that, there was really very little focus on Islam itself in the household. And so because I'm the eldest child, I began to discover Islam and really wanted to promote Islamic understanding. I would initiate these conversations with my parents. And um, and my mother had a very ritualistic practice. Even to this day, every morning she wakes up and she reads the Quran. So my, I'm very thankful that my mother taught me how to pray and how to fast. And But those are the rituals. You see, and I would say to my mother, do you know what you're reading? To this day, she doesn't know what she's reading, but she still reads it, which is, um, which I'm, I'm proud of her for doing that. But I wanted to, as an analyst and as a researcher, I realized we need more than that. We need true education. And true education comes from understanding what you read. It's so basic. Um, I cannot expect my own children to just memorize the Quran, a verse, and then not know what they're saying. And so I focus on the analytical you know, concept of understanding what you're reading and learning about history. And so I would bring books um, from, you know, Prophet Muhammad's life, or I would read them stories. But I would also tell them stories about Western heroes and Western philosophies and and other Eastern, uh, you know, practices of faith, because I wanted them to understand um, that this world is of people of different ethnic groups and religious practices. And even there are those of, you know, you know, who don't even embrace religion at all, that we're a, a very diverse community. Um, and to respect that and to, un, and to embrace other people, because Islam also, you know, um, is a great concept of tolerance in Islam and love for humanity. And when you have mercy, uh, my children are probably nauseated with this term because I talk about mercy in the household all the time. <laughs> when you have mercy in your heart, you will be kind, period. You will show compassion. And it all begins with the mercy. So always show mercy, live a life of mercy, 
um, which really means, you know, embracing a growth mindset. And I have the, you know, and, and, and you're rewarded when you help other people. It's very simple. Um, and I know that this comes from Christianity and Judaism and also even within Buddhism and Shintoism and other faiths that I've actually studied in college. I've taken classes in Christianity. In fact, I took a class on Christianity when I was in London. I was in a study abroad program, and then I took a class on Buddhism years ago. And, and I think it's important, but I also emphasize you know, learning religion for yourself so that you are strong in your identity. I did not want my children to have an identity crisis, um, but these are the identity struggles that children have to grapple with when they're living, not in the West, but when they're living in a family or with parents who may not give them the, that kind of knowledge. Um, um, but again, I, I, I deeply respect my, respect my parents. They did the best that they could, and they still focus on, you know, kindness for everyone. It was just not within, um, you know, the structure of Islam, um, but they did have respect for religion, even if their practice is different from my practice. Yeah. And just sort of changing back to women who've fallen for extremist interpretations, I mean, in your experience, is it possible to, to help women who have fallen for these extremist interpretations? The work that I do not do, um, to be honest, because my role is an educator, and so I'm in the classroom, or I'm a researcher, or I'm an interviewer, um, but this process of um, bringing someone back out of um, ex extremist fold it's really an arduous task, and there is one, or I, I would say two sisters, uh, they're social workers in Lebanon who do this work, and they go to the prison system uh, in Beirut, and inside the prisons, there are females, there are women who had joined ISIS, and now they've been indicted, and so they're in prison. And these young girls... Um, they have been trying, and I, I almost want to say unsuccessfully, uh, but they've been trying to speak to these women about um, you know, the radicalization process and what led them there. And in order for you to, you know, we use this term de-radicalize, which is not a term I'm comfortable with, but it's what we call it. In order to de-radicalize or bring someone out of that extremist mindset, you have to be willing to spend an enormous amount of time. Think about the enormous amount of time that was uh, uh, given to these young girls and women who join. Now you have to have someone who's educated on Islam or someone who certainly is a compassionate social worker or interviewer be willing to help these women um, come out of that life. And then to do that, you can't just talk about Islam. You need to provide for them. You need to give them educational access. You need to probably provide a home for them. You need to give them safety and protection. Because in one case in my book, um, you know, Lisa told me this just horrific story about the woman that they released. And she was jailed because she had been a member. And so they, uh, she was interrogated when she was released. Um, you know, Lisa said it broke my heart that I had to let her go, but we got the information we needed and so we couldn't keep her in jail. And this is in Iraq. When they released her, she was found by the you know, guy, the operatives, and then they killed her and because she, you know, they, they knew that she had given information. So you have to provide for these women. Um, it's much more than just having a conversation on Islam. You need to give them safety and protection. You need to give them 
um, a normal life again, you know, and it's not easy. I mean, there's an entire um, issue now happening with girls who are coming out of terrorism, who are choosing to leave because it wasn't the life that they had, you know, wanted, or it's not the life that was promised to them. For example, girls leaving ISIS and they're trying to come back into European society, you know, the entire uh, repatriation and um, what you might call, uh, you know, reintegration process is very tricky because in order for it to work, in my humble opinion, effectively, you need to provide for these girls in every way, their protection, their education, a place to live. Um, You need to probably sometimes to protect their identity, you need to change their identity. Um, You know, you need to move them to a different city or a different place. Um, The the government uh, certainly has to be involved in this entire process. It's not just a one-step process. There are multiple steps that need to take place in order for these girls to reintegrate into society. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a combination of witness protection with sort of counselling and religious counselling. And obviously, I I can see uh, politically that's going to be a hard sell for some people because people think that, oh, if you've joined a terrorist organisation, you should just be arrested or whatever. But it requires a very holistic or humanistic approach to kind of fixing this problem, isn't it, really? Absolutely. I mean, there's a a new movie that, uh, a relatively new movie that actually speaks to this issue. It's called Layla, Layla M., and it's a Moroccan girl who joins, they never say the name of the terrorist group, but she joins this terror group, and you never really know if she's going to Syria, but she's in a different place. And then she realizes this is not what she um, was promised. Um, and it's, and so she's constantly this battle with her family. And I, it is, in a, it is set in a European country. But when she comes back, um, she is looked upon as a suspect. And it's very hard for the security forces to try to understand, you know, what to do with her. And in fact, you, you're absolutely correct, Chris. You need to involve counselor, counselors and social workers and an entire, what I call a committee of community members need to be involved. Um, security forces are not trained to do this kind of work. They have a very specific role, and it's an important role that they play, but they are not counselors or religious um, guides or even family members and so forth. Um, so we need to you know, involve the entire society. And that, quite frankly, is a conversation, I think. I mean, I think that it's it, – I know it's an ongoing process, and it's different for each country. Is that getting better or worse in the United States at the moment? Well, in the United States, you know, there's always been a different uh, place. I always – some people would like to compare the United States to the UK, and I think that's not a fair comparison. Even though there have been terrorist attacks here and recruitment taking place here, it's sporadic, and it's um, and it's because the educational opportunities and economic, you know. Um, mobility or advancement is one of the primary reasons ethnic communities and immigrants come here. Um, Many immigrants come to America because they're fleeing a conflict themselves. And so you find very, uh, you know, their, their focus is not to join terrorist organization. Their focus is to have a better life. And you can say that for immigrants actually in many European countries today, I mean, coming in, wanting to come into a European society is because they really want a better life for themselves. They're escaping um, torture or savagery in their host country. And so economic reasons and educational opportunities is, is really prime for them. Um, and so there are very few cases in the U.S. and the cases that we have seen I would largely pin it on ignorance of Islam and also isolation. Um, There is the case of a girl named Alex in upstate New York, and she had 
this was a Christian girl who actually even taught Bible um, studies on Sunday, but she lived with her grandmother in a very small town, was very isolated. And so she looked normal on the outside, but then inside she must have been struggling with the lack of belonging and purpose. And so she went on the internet and was recruited by ISIS. And um, anyhow, the authorities intervened at the right time. But these girls who are isolated, I mean, isolation itself and that feeling of marginalization and not belonging, these are key symptoms and factors that we need to focus on that we each one of us can do. I mean, I know the school system, you know, school teachers are trained now to um, look for children who may exhibit these signs. It's a very controversial, um, you know, topic to raise the, you know, what the UK is doing, but, you know, for um but I know my cousin who was a school teacher in East London also had to look at, you know, these kinds of signs in children. But you have to understand school teachers are not counselors themselves. And so you have to really have what I call a multifaceted approach. You need to have everyone working together to try to understand, um, you know, why uh, one child or one girl uh, might turn to radicalization. And I do think isolation plays a key factor as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And these are very much, you know, these are very much the themes of, of being a teenager and growing up and trying to find your identity, really. It's that kind of fertile ground, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not easy being a teenager, period, no matter what your, you know, background is. Um, teenagers are in that very uh, kind of nascent stage of trying to find who they are as human beings. I mean, if you speak to neurologists, they will say it's not until you're the age of 21 that your brain is fully developed, which is why you can understand that when teenagers, you know, teenage boys and girls might join radical groups or do something even crazy like join, I mean, even gangs or um uh, something that's abnormal uh, to us. Um, it's because that, that adventurism, um, you know, feeling important, wanting to be adult when you're not yet an adult, all these things play a role in our kind of the teenage uh, teenager's brain. Um, and I do think that a lack of belonging, lack of purpose, um, wanting to be loved and liked and uh, find your place in this world are very important things for teenagers and young adults. And if an organization can provide that for you, then that really, you know, is everything. It's golden. I remember speaking to some former gang members. And in fact, sometimes you, you know, you'll have conferences and you'll see former gang members with former terrorists. And it's really striking to see the commonalities between the two. They both exhibit the same longing for family um, maybe they didn't come from a strong family system or maybe they had issues with their families because their families don't, uh, you know, give them the kind of resources or tools that they need. And so it's really very similar. And, and even though it sounds kind of very basic, um, but it, it is very true that having a strong identity is really important. And that's what I try to do in my own household. I mean, my children are grown now, but I had, you know, for years always focused on Islam. Do you know your Islamic identity? What does Islam mean to you? I mean, I almost became like a teacher in my own home. And my children became tired of listening to the same questions, you know, and my son would say to me, why are you so worried about me? I look like an Indian anyway, <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, that's not the point. It's not what you look like. It's what you believe and it's how you act, you know, and, and um, 
and my daughter flies a, a plane, you know, and she's uh, she started flying a plane when she was 13 years old. So I have literally, as a mother, you know, pushed my children to be bold and daring and to do things that were out of the norm, even in an American society. I mean, I can't think of another young girl, you know, flying a glider plane. And I tell that story because it's really about empowerment. And because I focus on the girls and women issues, we have to empower girls and empower them in, and ask them, what is it that you want to do? What do you like to do? Um, how can I help you? And I find that parents are often too busy, too ignorant, or even careless. Um, I actually also blame the parents in, in a small way. Um, I mean, it's not a parent's fault when a child joins a terror organization, but for parents to be interviewed and say, I didn't know is just extreme ignorance to me. Why didn't you know? Didn't you see the signs? Don't you see that your child is, you know, becoming isolated or staying in her room too long mm. or she's not engaging you? Can't you see her response? Or don't you know her peers or her friends? Or aren't you, I mean, you have to be almost like, a, you know, as my children call me the, you know, the police mom, you know, you have to <laughs> investigate. You have to, you know, monitor them in every way. Because if you don't, then this happens. And actually, it was a woman from Birmingham, very last story, named Nicola, who contacted me because she wanted to speak from one mother to another who lost her son to ISIS. And this woman, is she converted to Islam. She's a counselor by profession. And I have all the respect for her. But in 18 months, which is how long it took before her child actually left for Syria, in 18 months, didn't you see the signs? And if you and she did see the signs. Her son joined another mosque, for example. Um, her son had, you know, friends that she was unaware of. Um, why didn't you see these as important signs? What happens is that these are gradual, and because they're baby steps, parents often don't know when to intervene, or they may not see them as kind of, you know, radical shifts because they're small signs. It's like one day your child, you know, dyes her hair pink. That's not a big deal, right? But then the next day she has her nose pierced or maybe the next day she's got tattoos up her arms. I mean, you know, it's gradual. I'm using that as an, another case. But I'm, what I mean is that we have a responsibility and, um, you know, one imam, after the San Bernardino attack, I was at the, I was in Denver, Colorado, so the imam at the mosque, at the Abu Bakr mosque, I listened to a sermon, and he was so right when he said, it starts in our homes. You have to clean your own house. You have to start with your family. You have to be cognizant. You have to be curious as well and ask questions. I'm not the type of mother who's satisfied with, how was your day at school? It was good. No, I want to know, how was your day at school? I need a paragraph answer. I need to know what you're doing. I need to be involved in the school. And that's what we, I find even, you know, even non-Muslim parents is, is time. We lack time, but quite frankly, it is our responsibility to make time for our children. And the more time we give, of whatever your race or creed, it doesn't matter. Time is what children need the most. And through time, you find belonging and love and care and compassion. Um, to me, it's just so basic, Chris, that it boggles my mind when I see that parents don't have enough time. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen it all too often in the um, interviews. 
um, you know, the parents are clueless or the, or, you know, like you were saying about the San Bernardino attack that, you know, nobody really knew anything about the person, their neighbor, their, you know, uh, fellow churchgoer, mosque-goer, you know, it's that sort of isolation and things. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very true. No, it's also with men as well, by the way. Mm. Um, even when you think you know someone, you may not know someone. And that that's the other side of the coin as well. Um, there have been cases, um, you know, Omar Farouk, for example, who, uh, who the suicide attack, not the suicide attack, but it was an attack against the Pulse nightclub in Florida. You know, apparently he had issued uh, very kind of radical statements before the attack. And so there was an entire investigation against his wife. And he had married twice and, and he was abusive. And those were signs as well. You know, domestic abuse is a sign. And so I think that men and even women um, who have husbands that are showing signs of, you know, abnormal behavior also need to speak up. And society, um, you know, especially in American society, there are plenty of resources here and a support system. Um, but it falls on each individual to, you know, to take action. Let's move into the final section. One thing I really enjoyed throughout your book was your exploration of your own faith, especially as you are confronted daily with so many people who have deeply misguided views on the faith of Islam. If you don't mind me asking, how, how has this journey affected you as a woman of faith? Yeah, absolutely. Um... Well, Chris, it has made me discover Islam, made me want to understand faith even uh, more, and also to live a to live by faith, and not to just to say I'm a Muslim by label or by name, but I'm a Muslim because I truly embrace the principles of mercy and tolerance and peace and compassion. And it's one thing to say those words, but to live a true Islam is also to understand Islamic history, to read the scripture. Um, I attend lectures. I go to various conferences to rely on the scholars. Uh, one of my favorite scholars is Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, who's in California, but he speaks of mercy. And he's a, as an, uh, an American, um, he, uh, and he was born Christian, but as an American, he has the gift of, um, referring to Islam and the Quran, but also to Western philosophy. And it's wonderful to see the blend because here's someone who can speak to Americans uh, living here in America. And I think that that's what's important, that those who are seeking Islam need to also respect the country in which they live and respect the place and community to which they belong. Um, and that's particularly an important point for Muslims living in the West. And so my own journey is, uh, you know, a journey is, is, is exactly that. You continue on this path. Um, you know, when people say that I'm an expert, I really despise that term because, you know, you continue to learn. It's a lifelong process. And so that's where I am in life as I, as much as I, you know, may teach in the classroom or teach at home, I'm also learning myself. Fahana, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? My website is the best place to look at my research and my latest book, uh, farhanakazi.com. 
F-A-R-H-A-N-A-Kazi-Q-A-Z-I.com, Farhanakazi.com, so it's just my name. And you'll find uh, my books and my lectures and even TV interviews. And it's also a way that you can contact me. Um, there's a contact form if you'd like to ask me a personal question, if you'd like to engage me, ask me to speak, or, or just share your own thoughts with me. I always love to engage other people, and I welcome that. Excellent. Well, Farhana, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.